Well, my name is Jacob Ansel, and it's such a pleasure to be here with you this morning. As Thomas mentioned, he and Bruce get a little bit of a break this morning, and I'm going to have the profound joy and opportunity to bring you God's Word. And as you can see from your handout, we're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy, specifically chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you would, go ahead and turn there with me now. Now, about six years ago, in 2012, I was a senior in high school. Um, I grew up in the smaller town of Woodenville, Washington, so I attended Woodenville High School, home of the Falcons, and uh, it was there that I had the opportunity at a school that was known for fantastic football and unparalleled athletics and academics to play my final season of football. Now, anybody who knows me knows that I am a fanatic for football. It takes you about five minutes of talking to me to realize that. Now, when I was in high school, I wasn't particularly great at it, even though I was passionate. I was standing there, I remember, before my coach at five foot ten, two 225 pounds. Wasn't particularly fast or agile. I was known by many much more for my width than for my height. And I just remember my coach stood there and he looked at me and he was dumbfounded. He's like, what do I do with this kid? Where do I put him? You see, I was too big and too slow to be a running back or a wide receiver. I was ironically too small to be a tight end. I couldn't throw the farthest I couldn't kick the hardest. And so as my coach stood there pondering, he decided to stick me where I would get the least amount of notice. Yes, he stuck me on the offensive line, somewhere where I would not be noticed. But I did really enjoy my time there. I enjoyed getting to know the men to my left and to my right as we got to work hard with one another two times a day, every single day during the summer and as we got to practice together through the school year. But I just remember every single day at practice, as I looked at my fellow linemen, I was reminded what an offensive lineman is supposed to look like. Six foot four, 275, not five foot 10, 225. It's safe to say that when Friday night came and it was time for varsity play, I didn't get much playing time. Well, that's not true. I should say I didn't get much meaningful playing time. Those of you that understand the sport of football will understand what I say next when I say I played in garbage time. Garbage time is the end of a game where your team is either up by such a great amount that the other team has basically conceded the game and your coach says, you know what, we're just holding the lead, let the second string guys go in. Or we were down by such a great amount that our coach says, it can't get much worse. Just let the kids play. Let them have a good time. But make no mistake, even though all of almost all of my playing time was in garbage time, when I played, I was still playing next to the best football players in the entire state of Washington. I remember distinctly to my right was the strongest teenager in the entire state. And to my left was this massive 
gentleman who went on to be a starting lineman for the Washington State Cougars and is now preparing for the NFL draft as a first or second round draft prospect. To say the least, as I stood there in that moment, a five foot ten, chubby high school kid, I felt out of place, like I did not belong. I felt inadequate. I didn't feel like I belonged this place that God had put me, this place that my coach had put me. I didn't measure up. I felt absolutely inadequate. And perhaps I should say the most inadequate I've ever felt in my life. Or that is until Julia and I moved here and I started having a chance to spend time with the youth of this campus. Being given the charge to walk alongside students of this campus to help them navigate some of the most difficult and most formational years of their life, to help them ask the question, what is my purpose here? What does God have me doing? And then be able to answer that. What is my place in God's kingdom? And as I would constantly pray and battle this feeling of inadequacy, I was able to receive comfort from God. Realizing that I had felt ill-equipped for so long, I felt that I couldn't bring about the change that I desired to see in the youth ministry. I couldn't be the one that makes our numbers increase. And that's absolutely right. I cannot do that. I don't have enough time in the day to help plan every event, to craft the perfect sermon, to relay to the students eloquently and beautifully and memorably why they should follow the Lord. On my own... I can't do that. But with God, I can. With God, I am more than equipped enough for this charge that he has placed before me. This charge to maintain the integrity of God's word, to pass it down to the next generation so that it can continue on in its entirety. And though I have felt many times like somebody could certainly do a better job, I know this is where God has placed me. This is what he has equipped me for. This is the call he has set before me. I stand here this morning in front of you thinking that Timothy was absolutely no stranger to the feeling of inadequacy. It seems this is actually something that greatly shaped his life, this feeling every single day. He was too young. He was too frail. And he was too timid. And he certainly couldn't accomplish the charge that the Apostle Paul had placed before him. And that is, again, true. He could not accomplish it without doing it through the strength and grace that comes from Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we dive into God's word, I just pray that each and every one of us would be able to be think about Timothy, thinking about Timothy and what he was feeling when these words were written to him from Paul and feel the weight with which Paul wrote these words to young Timothy. Let's go ahead and actually backtrack a little. Go to 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18. We see that there is a vivid picture here of the situation that the churches of Asia Minor have been placed into says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom were Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered to me at Ephesus. What we see Paul talking about here is perhaps one of the saddest cases of apostasy that we're aware of. One of the saddest instances of people renouncing their faith and turning away from God. These people who not long ago were fervent about their faith, they were fervent about following the ministry of Paul. They have completely turned away. Likely this was taking place because of persecution that had come against the church as a result of Emperor Nero. While also I think part of this would be because Paul has been imprisoned for a second time. And suddenly we see that many of those associated with the gospel, many of those associated with Paul in the province of Asia Minor have completely turned away and they have done so with the purpose of self-preservation. Isn't it amazing And by amazing, really, I mean how sad and atrocious it is, how quickly we can forget the wonders of God, the great works of God. Acts 19 tells us what was taking place not long before this apostasy. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12. And just to give some context, this is going to be referring to a time when Paul and his disciples were able to go into the local lecture halls and have these God-honoring conversations. It says this, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their disease left them, and evil spirits came out of them. What we see here is this beautiful time in the ministerial career of Paul, a time where there was such God-honoring conversation going on that Jews and Greeks were both hearing this. We see that people were so in belief or maybe even disbelief at the amazing things that were happening that those who were sick were seeking just to touch a handkerchief or a garment which had touched Paul. These men, these women, these children saw perhaps more signs than we may ever see in our life. But what do we see take place in 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18? Not long after they have experienced this amazing message, this, these miracles, this majesty of God, they have turned away. And specifically, Paul notes two that have deserted him. In verse 15, he notes Phygelus and Hermogenes. And I wish I could tell you more about them. I really do. But this is their sole mention in Scripture. How would you like it if your sole mention in scripture was the fact that you abandoned the Apostle Paul? Now, perhaps they were leaders in the church. Perhaps they were close friends of him. We don't know. What is made apparent, what is made very clear through this passage is that Paul is deeply hurt and deeply disappointed of this desertion. 
But Paul does something beautiful. He doesn't just leave it in this area of despair. He turns this around completely and he talks about a man who exemplifies great faithfulness, which is very, very fitting as the rest of the time in this passage, he begins to speak about characteristics of faithfulness. He talks about Onesephorus. Though much of the province has defected, though much of the province has turned away, Onesephorus has remained faithful. And Paul goes on, again, not leaving it there, but he goes on to relay the extent to which Onesephorus has remained faithful. He says that he searches all over for Paul. He does not stop until he finds him in prison. And then he goes to him so that he might care for him, so that he might love him and he might refresh the Apostle Paul. And so today I would hope now that with a more robust understanding of this background, that again, we would be able to feel the weight with which Paul penned these words to young Timothy, especially verses one and two of chapter two, where we find our main point this uh, or this morning. And as we move into this passage, I also think it's helpful to note how Timothy would have received this message, how Paul wrote it. You see, he writes it in a way that is very easy for us to follow because the start of chapter two is like that of an academic essay, starting with the main point and then support of that main point. Or we see Paul gives his main point and then gives additional principles for us to follow. And so in verse two in verses one and two, we see Paul's main idea in his command for Timothy. It says, you then, my child, be strengthened by grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me and the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He starts this at the very beginning with this command for Timothy, this two part charge saying, Timothy, be strong in grace, pass on the faith. This is his charge And we, much like Timothy, are first and foremost called to be strengthened by the grace that comes from Christ Jesus. The rest of this command that is going to follow, these additional charges for Timothy are not meant to be done in his own strength, by his own might. But they are to be done by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus, by submitting your life to Christ as Savior, the strength that comes from a relationship with Jesus. You see, on his own, Timothy is too weak, too frail, or too young. And there's no way that he can carry out the command that has been set before him by the Apostle Paul. But with God, with that being his strength, Timothy will remain faithful. And he will also be able to fulfill the second part of this command which is to pass on the faith, to faithfully pass on the gospel message, this message that Timothy has experienced, the message he has heard preached numerous times by his friend and his mentor. He is charged and we are charged with faithfully passing this message down with integrity. It must be passed down from generation to generation amid this persecution they're experiencing 
outside of the church and the heretics inside of the church. It is crucial now more so than ever that the integrity of God's word be upheld in its entirety. The truth shall not waver to become culturally relevant or tolerable in hopes of avoiding persecution. Timothy and we are called to boldly proclaim the truths, these truths that shall never waver, and to pass this message on with great integrity and to pass it on in its entirety. Here in the twilight of his life, this is Paul's concern, that this message be passed on with integrity. And that is why we see Paul does not say to Timothy, be solidified simply in what you believe. That is part of it. He wants Timothy to be solidified in what he believes, but then he wants to be sure that he passes it on faithfully to these teachers who can in turn pass on this message with integrity. And then, as Paul often does, in verse 3, he makes this transition and he gets brutally honest with Timothy. And he tells him, Timothy, if you follow this path that I have called you to, there will be great persecution that is going to follow. This is not an easy road, but this is the one that Timothy is called to. And as Paul continues on in this passage, he presents us with the three characteristics of the one who is willing to faithfully pass on the gospel message. First is that of the suffering soldier. Second is that of the determined athlete. And third is that of the hardworking farmer. So first, Paul explains we are to suffer as a soldier in verses 3 through 4 in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. First, we see that Paul incorporates this image of a soldier. This is an image that he is very fond of. If you look at all of his books in the New Testament, you are going to see that somewhere in there. And each time he usually uses it to relay a different point. In Philippians and Philemon, it's used to mention Christians as fellow soldiers. And today we saw that in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about righteousness, about truth, faith, and salvation as the armor of God, which the Christian is to put on, as well as the word of God being the sword of the spirit. Yet here we have Paul utilize this military imagery and terminology in a different way. Now it is used for the purpose of relaying a call to faithfulness. One commentator explained the three purposes with which the soldier is presented. First, the soldier is called to a stalwart endurance of hardships in and outside of times of battle. The soldier is called to a life of suffering and service, whether it's long hours of training, months of deployment or the heat of battle. The soldier is called to this endurance. The Christian, much like the soldier, is guaranteed 
that hardships will come. In fact, isn't that what Bruce has been talking to us about the past few weeks? Many people will try and say that the life of a Christian is simply one of puppy dogs and rainbows. It's a life of just great material blessing, but that's not the image Scripture shows us. Though it is a life of blessing, it may look different than what the world expects. And it is also a life of sacrifice, a life of suffering, a life of service, and a life of purpose. Christians must know of and be prepared for the hardships that are going to come so that they might remain faithful to their call. Second, the soldier is also called to an avoidance of entanglements which might hinder their job. In other words, the soldier and the Christian are both called to remain focused on the task that has been set before them. The soldier specifically separates themselves from civilian affairs, making sure that their mind is solely focused on the task that is set before them. And in a similar way, the Christian is called not to be entangled, not to be distracted by the things of this world. They are to keep their mind, to keep their heart set upon that which is truly important. They are to remain faithful to their call. Third and finally, the soldier is called to desire to please the one who enlisted him. Just as the soldier is to desire to please his enlisting officer, so the Christian is called to desire to please the one who is important, most important to them, which is their father in heaven. Though the Christian is called to faithfully pass on the message of the gospel, though they are called to pass it down from generation to generation so that all might hear and believe, ultimately, this is done so that God may receive the glory, that his name might be glorified. The Christian and the soldier are called to desire to bring glory to the one who enlisted them, the one who is the initiator, the reason for their very service. They are to remain faithful to their call. So to simplify this, the soldier has a job. He is called to remain faithful so that he might please the one who enlisted him, his commanding officer. The soldier was always to remain ready because they were in the midst of war, to remain ready for battle and to be prepared for anything, to respond to a threat that might come about in an instant. They are not to allow themselves to be deterred by civilian affairs, to be entangled by them. Nothing must deter them from accomplishing their mission. They are given a mission. They are given an objective. They are charged to carry it out to completion. They must remain faithful to their call. In 2006, President George Bush presented Romaine and Thomas McGinnis with the Medal of Honor. These grieving parents were presented the Medal of Honor because of their son's acts of valor in the battlefield. While on patrol, Private Ross McGinnis of the Army had a grenade thrown into the hatch of his Humvee. Now, instead of his immediate reaction being jumping out of the Humvee and likely saving his life, his instinct was to jump on top of that grenade 
to lose his life instantly, but save the life of the other four members that were in the Humvee with him. Private McGinnis knew his call to accomplish his mission and to protect his fellow soldiers around him. And he remained faithful to that call, even at the cost of his life. He didn't join the army because he thought it would be an easy life to choose. Rather, he joined it knowing full well life would be difficult. Knowing that he would be called to service and to suffering, he fulfilled his call to remain faithful. Do each and every one of us here today exemplify the same faithfulness? Does our faithfulness to the gospel look similar to the faithfulness of a soldier for the task that has been set before them? If a soldier is willing to sacrifice everything, to push forward unhindered, to lay down their life for something that is temporary, how much more should we be willing to lay down, willing to sacrifice, when the message that we are called to carry and pass down has significance not just for this life, but for eternity? Do we live each day faithfully pursuing the task that God has set before us? The second image we are given, the second characteristic, is that we are to be determined like an athlete. Verse 5 says this, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, similar to the image of the soldier in verses 3 and 4, Paul in verse 5 continues to help us visualize this image of faithfulness by using an athlete. And showing us that the athlete, much like the soldier, must, has an objective that they must attain, that they are seeking after. In the case of the athlete, that is to des- the desire to attain the victor's crown. However, to attain this crown, they must compete according to a specific set of rules. Now, the stress here is either to compete to a set of rules inside of a game or an event, or to adhere to a set of rules in strict training before the game. Depending on your interpretation, I'm not sure that it particularly matters very much. Of the two, I think, though, I would be inclined to put more weight on the latter of the two. Because this is meant to be a depiction. This athlete is meant to show us of one diligently preparing for the Olympic Games. Now, of course, they had to abide by a specific set of rules inside the game but they were also called to strict training to abide by a strict set of rules before the games had even taken place. In fact, the competitors of the Olympic games had to take an oath stating that they had been training for 10 months prior to the event taking place. Now, additionally in first Corinthians nine twenty-four through 27, Paul utilizes similar imagery this image of an athlete, one who is diligently training, yet in that case it is for the ability to attain a lasting prize. In this verse, the Greek verb athleo is utilized, and it's used to mean and express or emphasize the great effort, determination, and discipline with which an athlete must train before the games. Much like the athlete, the Christian 
is called to prepare in accordance with the rules. And what I mean by this is you are meant to hold fast to what the word of God says. Here, Paul gives us this vivid imagery telling us that unless the athlete competes according to the rules, unless they train according to the rules, they will not be victorious. And we can certainly then draw the conclusion that if we as believers stray from the word of God, we will not be victorious. If we compromise the word of God for cultural relevance, if we compromise the word of God in order to be accepted by our relativistic world, we will not be victorious. Much like the athlete, if we desire to be victorious, if we desire to pass on the faith in a God-honoring manner, we must stick closely to the word of God. In 2011, the mixed martial arts community was set ablaze. A young man by the name of John Jones at the age of 23 had won the light heavyweight belt in the UFC. It seemed that his skills far surpassed anybody that he competed with. He was the model of diligent training and of execution inside the ring. He suddenly became the golden boy of the UFC. He defended his title time and time and time again until it seemed there was nobody left to challenge him. But in 2015, he started to run into some troubles. Capped off by a hit-and-run accident that he was involved in, he was immediately stripped of his belt and given a year-long suspension from competition. And later... In the year 2016, after he had trained diligently, after he had prepared, it was going to be this great story, this comeback story, the story of faithfulness and diligence and preparation. Before he could even get back into the ring, he was given another year-long suspension because of his use of performance-enhancing drugs. But when 2017 came around, he was finally back. He had an opportunity because he was such an excellent athlete, to immediately have a shot at the light heavyweight title. He had trained so hard, and again, it was going to be this perfect image of diligence, this resurrection of his career. He fought in that light heavyweight bout, and he picked his opponent apart. He won convincingly, and he took that victor's belt, and he raised it above his head. He was victorious. But he had that belt less than one week before it was stripped from him again, before his title was taken away, before he was given another suspension, because he was once again caught using performance-enhancing drugs. John Jones was called to train diligently, to train according to the rules if he wanted to achieve his goal, but he could not. The athlete in pursuit of the crown, they must remain faithful, whether focusing on following the rules inside the event, during the event, or before, it does not matter. The focus is this. The athlete in pursuit of the crown must remain faithful. Do we as Christians remain faithful 
as the athlete is called to remain faithful? Do we compete according to the rules? Do we hold to and pass on what is found as scripture as what it is? Absolute truth. Or are we willing to compromise what we know to be the truth so that it may be seen as more acceptable to others? Third, we are to work hard like a farmer. In verse 6, it says it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have his first share of the crops. This third and final image given by Paul is that of the hardworking farmer. It is meant to exhort Timothy to remain faithful, to work hard and to remain focused on the future, on the reward that is to come. Now, a farmer doesn't sit at home. They don't wake up in the morning at 1030 and then have a nice breakfast, take a nap just in time to wake up for a big lunch, and then go outside and see that their crops have just sprung out of the ground out of nothing. That's not what a farmer does. That would be ridiculous. But the hardworking farmer in season sows generously, tends the crops diligently so that one day they might reap bountifully. If the desire for the farmer is the reward that is to come, he must remain faithful along the way. Let me say that again. If he desires the reward that is to come, he must remain faithful along the way. In this passage, when Paul utilizes the term hardworking to describe the farmer, he does so very intentionally. In the Greek, this idea of hardworking was meant to be somebody who was willing to labor, labor to the point of exhaustion. Someone that desired for their farm to be prosperous, they were willing to work all day. They were willing to take on backbreaking labor for the entirety of the day in the scorching heat so that one day they might be able to reap a bountiful harvest. And in utilizing this image, we see that Paul is exhorting young Timothy, as well as us, do not become lazy. Work fervently as we spread the word of God, as we spread his good news and his saving grace, and do so with the harvest in mind. And do this so that you might be able to receive the reward that is coming. And he is doing this, telling us of this harvest that is in mind, telling us to think of the people who will come to faith. To think how these actions will glorify God and to think about the rewards, the rewards that await those in heaven who have remained faithful. Though different today than in the New Testament, farming is still an incredibly hard and taxing job. All of my life, the extent of my working of the land has been pulling weeds and doing light landscaping in my parents' backyard. And I thought that even though we're in Idaho, some of us may be a little bit removed in the city of Meridian from farming. And so I did a little bit of research. What does it look like in the average day in the life of a farmer? And I found this example, this log of a small family farm in South Carolina. And it says this, 630, 
wake up, make coffee, do laundry, post updates online about the market, email potential customers. Seven, feed and water the chickens and the goats, clean the barn and the coop, milk the goats, gather the eggs, tend the greenhouse crops. 8 a.m., breakfast. 9 a.m., plot out growing areas for crops, inventory of seeds, plans for upcoming seed orders. 10 a.m., muck out the goat stalls, turn dirt with the tractor. 12 p.m., lunch. 1 p.m., wash the eggs and greenhouse items, package for sale. 2 p.m., customer pickup of goods. And 5 p.m., once again, feed goats and chickens, herd animals inside for colder nights. Now, just reading through this list, this laundry list of things that had to be completed every day, just reading the list is exhausting. And this is just for a small three-acre family farm. But you can clearly see here, in the life of a farmer, there is no opportunity for laziness. That is not an acceptable choice. If you desire for your family to eat... If you desire for your family to survive, you desire for your harvest to be bountiful, for your livestock to thrive, you must intentionally work hard every single day. And like the farmer, we must be intentional in the way that we proclaim God's word and we work for the Lord. Is this the way that we live? Do we approach each day intentionally as we are at home, as we are at work, at school, or passing strangers on the street? Are we intentional about the way in which we spread the gospel and the way in which we bring glory to God's name? And do we keep our minds focused on the rewards that are to come for the ones who remain faithful? And it's as this portion of Paul's letter comes to a close that we see Paul present Timothy with a reminder in verse 7. A reminder that says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Immediately following verse 6, we see it's as if Paul is directing Timothy back to the main point in verse 2, reminding him to reflect upon the command to be strengthened by grace and pass on the faith. Timothy must indeed rely on the strength given by Christ so that he might remain faithful to his calling. He must be willing to suffer as the soldier, to be as dedicated as an athlete and to work as hard as the farmer. I feel as you read this passage, you can see and feel the anticipation and love with which Paul writes these words. Paul knows already what is happening in the church and around, and he has a sense of what is to come as he is sitting, likely waiting for his own execution. He knows of the difficulties and challenges that will face young Timothy because that is the life of the one who is faithful to the calling God has set Upon them. That is the calling of the one devoted to Christ. But even so, Paul calls Timothy and all of us here today to be strengthened by grace, to pass on the faith, 
to be strengthened by grace to pass on the faith. Faith that is rooted solely in the truth of the gospel and of God's word. We must emulate the faith of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. We must be willing, like the soldier, to give everything so that the gospel message can be passed on. Like the athlete, we must hold to Scripture, and Scripture alone as truth. This must be the truth that we pass down in its entirety and with great integrity. And like the farmer, we must be willing to work diligently and intentionally at passing on the gospel as we look for new opportunities every single day so that ultimately we may glorify God. For if we attempt to do these things in our strength, Paul reminds us most importantly, if we were to try and do this in our own strength, we will fail. And that is why we are called not to attempt to do these in our own strength. This is perhaps one of the most important points that Paul makes is that we are to do so in the strength that is given us by Christ Jesus. For if we attempt to do these things in our own strength and in our own might, we will fail. But if we do them as we are empowered by our Lord and our Savior, we will be able to accomplish each of these things that has been set before us, and we will be able to accomplish even more. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for these loving and brutal and honest words of Timothy as he prepares of, sorry, of Paul, as he prepares Timothy for this ministry that he is taking on, for the passing on of your gospel message. Lord, I pray each and every one of us here this morning would feel great conviction, O Lord, but also be comforted to know that none of this, none of these tasks that we are called to are supposed to be done in our own strength, Lord. Let us rely on you as our Lord and Savior to give us strength today and every single day. Let us look for opportunities to share your gospel. Let us suffer like the soldier, Lord. Let us be dedicated as an athlete and work hard like a farmer. And God, let us do it all to your glory. We love you, God, and pray that you would bless us today and all days. In your name, amen.